Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Christina Duranti. She's a professor of marketing at Rutgers Business School and a social psychologist who studies the biology of decision-making and evolution of female psychology. For the first time in history, many women have the opportunity to pursue a career as their primary life path. But does this prohibit them from also having a family? Do women actually want to be mothers or is it their only option? Do women actually want careers or is it just a shiny new opportunity? Expect to learn if women have an impulse to actually have children or just to have sex, whether careers make women happy, whether the marriages of career women are more or less successful, whether women's ovulatory cycles change their preferences for bad boy mates, what buying expensive bags and shoes signals, and much more. I very much appreciate Christina's input and viewpoint here. I like the fact that she is an advocate for women's wealth. I like the fact that she is aware of some of the challenges that are faced in family lives of women that are pursuing careers and in the career lives of women that want to have a family. I think that the elephant in the room that continues to kind of be ignored by mainstream messaging is that everybody needs to make trade-offs and sacrifices and in order to be able to get past these problems and not have them completely destroy you and come out of nowhere, you need to be aware of what the data suggests and subjectively the experiences of people that have already tried to do things you're trying to do. So yes, very much appreciate the fact that we've got an evolutionary psychologist coming at this from a different angle. In other news, this episode is brought to you by MyProtein. They are the number one sports supplement company on the planet, literally the biggest in the world. I'm flying orange and mango clearway in a suitcase back over from the UK to America. That is how addicted to that stuff I am. If you need a new protein, I highly recommend that you check out their clearway. It's see-through, it's light and fruity, it looks and tastes like juice, but it has more protein in than a normal protein shake. It's so easy that you can drink it during a workout. Also, their layered protein bars are fantastic. They've just released a new collection of men's and women's clothing on their website. There is an unlimited number of sports supplements, protein foods, and everything else. Anything that you need with regards to training, food supplements, or clothing you can get from MyProtein. And there is a 37% discount on everything site-wide. Go to bit.ly slash proteinwisdom. That takes you to my super secret product page and that unlocks the code. If you use that code modernwisdom at checkout, you'll get 37% or greater off everything site-wide. Bit.ly slash proteinwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by... Verso. It's important to get the right exercise, nutrition, and sleep as we age, but there is more that you can do for your longevity routine as well. Verso's cell being is a nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NMN-based supplement. NMN is a precursor to NAD, and a decline in NAD is associated with age-related diseases. This is a staple of most longevity hackers supplement regimes, and Verso has compiled everything together into one supplement. You've got your NMN, you've got your naturally derived micronized transresveratrol and TMG, three of the most popular supplements that people who are doing longevity work rely on, and it's been encapsulated into one product. All that you need to do is take tablets once per day. So if you've been wanting to get started with longevity supplements, this is a great place to begin. Head over to ver.so slash modernwisdom or use the code MW15 at checkout to save 15% on your order. That's ver.so slash modernwisdom and MW15 at checkout. 
And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Crafted London. They are the number one men's jewellery brand on the planet. Literally over half a million customers worldwide. I wore their hourglass necklace yesterday for an interview with the BBC. And I was dressed kind of smart. And usually it's kind of hard to wear jewellery if you dress smart because... You can sometimes look a little bit gauche, but it looks fantastic, which is one of the reasons that I like their stuff, because you can wear it if you're dressed casually or if you're going to a more formal event. Crafted have got a huge range of products, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings in gold and silver, and they are sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, gymproof, and come with a lifetime guarantee. So if they break for any reason while you've got them, they'll send you another one. Head to bit.ly slash cdwisdom. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom. And the code MW15 will get you 15% off their entire collection, everything site-wide, and they deliver no matter where you are in the world. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christina Durante. Christina Durante, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. Did you see the Serena Williams article in Vogue? I did not. Oh, well, let me tell you about it. So her issue, the, the article is about the fact she's now 41. She's still a top flight tennis player. And she's got one child, I think Olympia and... Uh, is now was aware that she would have a limited window perhaps to have more children uh, so is having to leave the sport she had some complications medically after the last child um perhaps slightly brought on by being an elite athlete i don't know the sort of stresses that that puts your body under the kind of internal changes or external changes um and then there's a couple of sections here so believe me i never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family she wrote i don't think it's fair if i were a guy i wouldn't be writing this because i'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family i have to presume that she means the literal physical labor of expanding the family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had that opportunity, Williams wrote, pointing at the football legend Brady, 45, who has three children and played in the NFL for 22 seasons before announcing his retirement in February, before changing his mind and announcing that he would return for a 23rd season just one month later. Ahead of her 41st birthday, Williams realized she had a narrow window to get pregnant again. I definitely don't want to be pregnant again as an athlete, she said. These days, if I have to choose between building my tennis resume and building a family, I choose the latter. I thought that was yeah. very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, especially since I think Tom Brady is um, on retirement is causing discord in his own marriage from, you know, at least the, what the gossip is, right? Uh, but, you know, there's something to that. Women do often have to make a trade-off that men, you know, typically don't have to. This is kind of a new thing with, you know, women being able to you know, have, be the Serena Williams of the world or, you know, um, the, uh, I'm blanking on a name of, you know, CEO of a company. Um, and we kind of have to figure out like, what are we going to excel at? Are we going to excel at our careers? Or are we going to excel as a parent? Cause it's really hard to do both very well at the same time. Um, and so, 
you know, historically, that has sort of been the the contract that we used to enter into through marriage is, you know, the 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 male works and the female stays at home and runs the household, which is a lot of work. And what I find really interesting is now that women have made tremendous strides into the workplace, they're finding themselves no better off in terms of households, uh, you know, running of the household and things that they have to do to make, you know, the household run. All of that unpaid labor isn't going away. It's, uh, It's still there. And what we find through the research is that women who, working women actually do more housework than women who are stay-at-home moms. What, what's the statistics behind that? How does that work? Uh, well, we just sort of re- get them to report how many hours a day they spend on various, you know, things or, or activities around the house. And what I think is happening is that women, working women feel more guilt surrounding, you know, not doing what's typically, you know, thought of as, you know, helping around the house. And, um, and you know, they're actually doing more. Uh, and more housework than you know that was done even in the even in the sixties. Now that has a lot to do with kids too, because kids require a lot of uh, parental involvement now than I think was happening. You know, certainly in the fifties and sixties with scheduling and all that kind of stuff. What's scheduling? Uh, well, now there's more parent involvement, and in, you know, even playdates. You got to call up the other parent. You got to figure out you know who's volunteering for this and and that and the other thing. And I think there's you know, and kids are involved in so many extracurricular activities. Rather um, than just letting them to go play stickball yeah, out yeah, in the yeah, street. Yeah, oh, okay. Just, you know, by six and, you know, so. Yeah. So this so, is perhaps a, a byproduct, not of helicopter parenting, but of a, a, an overly observant parental style. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think that part of it is, you know, helicopter parenting um, that we're doing now uh, more than we ever had before. You know, we just kind of, you know, let our kids run around uh and that's a whole nother topic I guess to talk about is, you know, how we manage our kids' lives now in a way that we never had, you know, before. Going back to what you said at the very beginning, it's uh, a novel situation that we found ourselves in where women can have the choice between being a Mm -hmm. carer or having a career. Yeah. And I I think it's the UK statistics say that more women are childless at 30 than not now in the UK. So 50.1% of women by 30 do not have children. So they are in the the bigger age bracket. I also right. saw Joyce Benenson's newest paper quotes just offhand, half of all women in the world are married by 18. Half. Half of all women in the world are married by the age of 18. Wow. That so, blew my mind. Those yeah, two yeah, statistics yeah. side by side yeah. absolutely took my head off. So, so some of those women are waiting that long no so what i think it is is that um the childless at 30 50.1 percent is exclusively i want to say it's the uk i think it's the uk there's definitely one in wales my point being that even uh this is novel ancestrally the choice between the two and it is very much a weird um phenomenon as well western educated industrialized blah blah uh it's very much over our side but on average, half of all women in the world are married yeah. by 18, evidently skewed by probably a lot of Africa, yeah. a lot of India, that's subcontinental what I'm stuff. So that doesn't shock me as much, but I'd be interested to know, like for the United States or other Western countries, it's got to be much. Oh, way later. Up, way, yeah. way, way, way yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way yeah. Later. 
Yeah, um, but you're right. I mean, that's 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 a mismatch, you know, ancestrally from you know what usually happens in terms of mating, and it's so interesting because usually there's this critical period when kids hit puberty and they become really interested in, that's where like intersexual competition comes in. And this is where, you know, and girls hit it before boys hit it. And you get a sense of like, where do you sort of land on the mating market? And it, it, it kind of solidifies. So if you, if you are a big nerd in high school, you never lose that nerdiness. I know because that's me. I never lose it in my mind. I'm, you know, a nerd. And so that's when, you know, you're supposed to be figuring out, you know, where you're going to go. And that's when all of the great magic happened in terms of, in terms of mating, you know, ancestrally. And now we have this period where, you know, we're, you know, we just keep, keep dating and keep dating and keep dating and keep dating. And, you know, and, and, you know, reproducing or not and certainly a lot of women delay it i mean serena williams is a geriatric mother you know in terms of you know in, in today's terms too but a lot but she's not unlike a lot of women um who are delaying it there's you know women do have a lot more options now um even though that trade-off still haunts us because you know we can move up that corporate ladder but as women move up the corporate ladder, that doesn't open up a whole new sea of men who are going to come home and shore up all of the duties on the home front, you know, whereas the reverse is true for men. So women kind of find themselves in this, you know, in this dilemma where they're contributing a lot at home financially and they're contributing a lot at home uh, with unpaid labor. And that could be just because women don't want to relinquish you know, some of the things to men, men also tend to do more, I guess, what's a good word for it, manly type of household labor, like mowing the lawn or, you know, fixing things as opposed to laundry and all the other stuff that has to get done. Um, And so, you know, this can now within marriages cause a lot of unpaid labor disputes that were never around before and discord uh, and resentment and all that kind of stuff that bubbles up did you look at the fact that women who women deny the fact that they're the primary breadwinner even when they are one yes so in a survey of married couples where all of them were involved in a situation where the women was the breadwinner over 60 percent said that that was not true so so in a survey where we know this about people, people want to report in a socially desirable way. So that's a problem in, in most, you know, experiments that use surveys. Uh, but it was interesting because they were a pre-selected uh, sample of, of individuals where researchers knew that the, these were, you know, couples where the women, the woman was the breadwinner and they didn't want to report it that that was actually the case. So over 60% said that they were not, that it was the man or that they were equal. Well, culturally at the moment, are we not seeing a lot of female empowerment? You can have it all, be a boss bitch, clap back, you know, compete with the men, more women go two to one, female to males, completing four-year US college degrees by 2030, 1,111 pounds more earned by women between the ages of 21 and 29 in the UK. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems surprising to me that women would underreport the fact that they are the primary breadwinners when culturally, at least 
what yeah. the media perhaps says, this isn't necessarily emergent bottom up. This isn't right. what's happening in terms of norms. But there, yeah. does, there does seem to be a pretty big push for women to become more masculinized in that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's so. So that's the haunting of sort of the traditional norms that still are not, even though there is a lot of movement towards, you know, uh, women, female empowerment. It's just it's really hard to give. So, uh, so, so a lot of women still want a partner who is at, you know, sort of at their own level. So making as much as them or more. Um, and, you know, they want a counterpart. And so I could see where, you know, that still, so, so the reflection of women not wanting to say, yeah, I'm the breadwinner, like it is, it is the haunting of that, you know, sort of traditional values that we used to have, like, They've been around for so long where we had this uh, system of, you know, women having this obligatory investment in children and men going off to do other things. I mean, you know, women couldn't go off to war because then children would die. And so would the, you know, any genes that supported a penchant for waging war in women. Men were free to go do that because they weren't having the babies. And, you know, and, and that's something that we do know that was happening. Women were having the babies. Men were not having the babies. And so, you know, all of our, you know, female ancestors going, you know, back in time. Now, this is before birth control. And so we still, you know, so if you were a woman that, and you were sexually active, you were probably a mother, most certainly. Um uh, and so we didn't have the the luxuries of you know outsourcing any care for most of human existence. So all of the stuff that's happening in our modern world now is really new, and our brains just haven't caught up. So we have a part of our brain that can say, you know, women empowerment, and that's kind of you know we we kind of have to you know push the social norms forward, and then you know we learn what we're valued, and and it, and it can cause change. But you know this this. The, the part of our brain that can think about this stuff intellectually is scaffolded onto, you know, deeper brain systems that have just been around for, you know, millions of years. And it's a hard override sometimes. Do careers make women happy? Yes. So I would say it also depends on the career. I would say it depends on the job. Um, uh, I think that, you know, women face more of that mating parent, not mating parenting, but like sort of status driving parenting conflict. Um, you know, they, the career family trade-off conflict. I think that women experience it more than men do. Uh, but, but when women are able to, you know, take time for themselves and, and pursue what they're passionate about, that increases their overall well-being. Um, but, you know, women experience a lot of burnout. Women experience a lot of stress because there are these, you know, demands on them. You know, well, someone I mean, needs really- to someone needs to give birth to the child, right? Someone needs to yeah. do that. the The bit that kind of got me a little bit about Serena's um, discussion there, the bit that left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, was when she said about labor, doing the physical labor. It's like, look, like men yeah. can't get pregnant. That's, that is an issue that we have. I understand right. that there are some disparities. Men think about sex more than women. Should we say that the fact that women don't think about sex as much as men do is an imbalance that needs to be corrected so that men can be made more happy in the world? I, I don't know. My point being that, especially for the first couple of years, I, I 
don't have kids, but I'm around some friends that do. And the dad is a spare part for the first two years. The mother is the one sure. that, that has more of an innate sense about what the child needs. The mother is the one that the child seems to pine for a lot more. They're the ones that have a better bond. They're the ones that are able to deal with crying and nappy changes and, and care and to have this intuition. That is, yeah. an, that is an imbalance between the capacities of men and the capacities of women. I mean, Serena's worth several hundred million dollars. I'm sure that she can find a perfectly uh, successful team yeah. of nannies that could mm-hmm. come in and take over. But the fact that she might feel guilt around doing that isn't something I think that's been laid at her feet from like vestigial evolutionary oppression or some sort of ruling of, of, of pressure from men. I think that it is a byproduct of the fact that the way that we create babies is asymmetric with regards to what men and women do in terms of their investment. Yeah, I think so too. So you're saying it's not an evolutionary vestige, but you know, the biological, you know, facts Reality. or what they yes. are. Yeah. And so, I mean, and Serena, you know, so so it so all of these things putting so much burden on women and there's so many women who are just like burnt out because of this trade-off, but women of means do have the ability to outsource this even at the level of outsourcing. Uh, you know, through surrogacy, who has the baby? A lot of women are doing this now, right? So, is that what rich is that what rich women do? I think so. Don't they? I don't know. That's part of that's part of it. So she could do that if she wanted to do it, but you know, she's already a mother, and for many women, you know, once that switch gets turned on, there's so much biology that comes online that was never online before that has to do with an increase in nurturing and wanting to care for children. So there's a caregiving mismatch between men and women and not mismatch, but maybe that's the wrong word. Imbalance. For it, but it's just, yeah, an imbalance. So, you know, moms are just more nurturing than dads. And a lot of that has to do with once you have a baby, Boy, do these hormones—you know—the hormones are basically the puppeteers of our behavior. And once you have a baby, uh, we have this whole suite of hormones that come online and you know direct our mothering behavior. We see it across all other species. I mean, for those of you who have seen you know animals become mothers, you could see you know a female who you know was you know aggressive and taking huge risks, and then she has a baby, and, and she might take risks to that baby, but. You know, she all of a sudden becomes like the most caring and nurturing, you know, mama bear. And 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 so men don't ever have, I mean, certainly things happen and there has been research showing that, you know, when men become fathers, their hormonal profile changes too, but not to the level uh, of what happens for, for women with prolactin and oxytocin and um, that sort of direct that, you know, that, that caregiving. And I don't know how much that goes away because we still have, you know, even after you have kids and they grow up, you're becoming a grandmother. I mean, that whole process where women can no longer reproduce and the leading theory is that, you know, then you're no longer reproducing because your daughters are starting to reproduce and you cannot help her if you also grandmother have hypothesis, own children. Yeah. yeah, the grandmother hypothesis. And so, so I don't know that there was huge selection pressure for women to ever, you know, lose that once they became mothers and and started having children. Go one step behind that. Is there a natural impulse for women to want to have children at all? That is a really great question. And uh, so, 
Yeah. Just to, just to clarify okay. the question, obviously the, the, the point is women could want to have sex and a byproduct of having sex would yes. be having children. Like yes. what we talked about here is that once you have a child, there is a maternal cascade right. uh, that gets flicked on and is very right. difficult to perhaps to stop right. and not only continues through child number one, potentially two, three, four, and so on, but then also continues you into grandmotherhood as well yeah. and all the rest of it. My yeah. the, the point that I'm interested in is prior to having the child, yeah. is there an impulse to have children? So... So yes and no. <laughs> so here, so women are complicated because we have two hormones when we're naturally cycling. So on birth control is a whole nother ball of wax. But um, so women have, you know, sex hormones. We have testosterone, but the primary one in women is, um, I shouldn't even say primary one because, you know, we have we have a significant amount of testosterone. But, but across the cycle, you know, estrogen increases and then it, you know, dips down again and then progesterone increases and we're preparing our body every month for a pregnancy. And progesterone is more of a nurturing hormone that will increase progressively if the the woman becomes pregnant within that cycle. And so, you know, what, so I uh, used to do a lot of work looking at women's changes in be- women's behavior across the cycle. And so, when looking at desire to have a child, even things like would you get an abortion and really heavy questions that, you know, I tend to steer away from now because there's such hot buttons. But what we find is that when women are ovulating, so this is a time when, um, you know, estrogen has just increased and it's, you know, they're really interested, they're more, their sexual desire has increased. And what dips down is all the parenting stuff. So they're not interested in children at all, at all when they're ovulating. Now, when that's finished and their body is preparing to potentially become pregnant, then that interest creeps up a little bit. So so to answer your question, um, before women have babies, are they more interested in having children than men? I bet you if we just randomly sampled, we'd find a, a sex difference there. But because women's prof- women kind of cycle in and out of you know high hormones that do two different things: one's mating and sex, one's parenting. Um, that you know it 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 it, it kind of depends. So yeah, you're right. Like we don't need um, an interest in children to get them. We just need an interest in sex. But once women become pregnant, that's when, you know, nature says, all right, time to time to do the caregiving, time to time to become more nurturing and want to do the, you know, the nesting. And we set up for the baby and we become interested in watching, um, you know, bringing home baby. And we wonder why our partners aren't interested in it. And they're not reading all the books that we want them to read because this is a big deal. This, so, so it's like then it's a complete you know, shift. So would you say perhaps that men and women diverge a lot more in their um, behavior and their predisposition upon the point at which women get pregnant, I imagine that that must cause yes. a little bit of um, uh, friction in, yeah. in in marriages, especially where the uh, man and woman perhaps were very similar for a long time. And then there is this big cascade of hormones that gets released. I've also heard that toward the back end of pregnancy, that women can actually feel more turned off or even partially disgusted by the smell of their male partner and they're more attracted to the smell of their own kin so mm-hmm. their genetic lineage and this again is look i'm very very close i'm to giving birth i'm very very vulnerable i need to be yes. with someone that i know is no physical threat to me uh, there's also i mean yeah. you know changes in hormones 
when girls go on the pill versus come off the pill, there's mm-hmm. apparently potential changes in uh, attraction toward mates that uh, one of the pieces of dating advice that I saw floating around on the internet is before you marry a woman, get her to come off the pill for six months to see if she still likes you. And yes. all of this yeah. stuff. My point being like, it's fascinating. The hormonal profile of women is is absolutely fascinating. And it's fascinating in a way that men, I don't think are really ever going to understand. Yeah. Yeah, I I I don't think so. It is it is really interesting and um you know so um before so your original question was do women want children um, or something like this. Yes. And so all of the stuff before they become a mom, I think a lot of that is is the you know sort of social values that we learn. I mean, it's just kind of like what you do, you know, is you know get married and and have a kid and you know th- that's that's part of it too and part of it probably is you know once a month we have this kind of you know hormones that come online that we make us feel like I should probably have a family <laughs> and then it's um and then it's a week of you know having higher sexual desire and then it's you know I heard I heard that the behavior change across women's ovulatory cycle has come under quite a lot of fire and criticism recently. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? I know you've done a lot of work here. So I think the criticism, criticism comes from, you know, how do you, how do you, how are we calculating the cycle and how are we estimating fertility? Because for a long time that varied, it it was almost like it varied by researcher. And so there was a lot of criticism about having such flexibility with how you calculate it means that you can just sort of figure out where your effect that you want to show sits in all of these different ways. And maybe one of them works and you can publish a paper on it. Um, So there was a big push to come to a consensus with how are we going to be estimating fertility? Well, the best way is to really just go in and, and measure day by day hormonal profiles. And, you know, as you, you know, clinically, and then figure that out as opposed to like having a researcher estimate the cycles and so forth. Um, but, you know, anytime, so there's a lot of stereotypes that surround women and hormones. Um, women are hormonal. Women, you know, don't make them cry. They shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be, you know, holding political office because maybe they're going to be on their period and they're cranky and this and the other. And uh, and so because of those stereotypes, it's really difficult to study changes in women's behavior across the cycle because you do get, you, I've gotten personally a lot of pushback uh, on looking at behavioral shifts uh, related to you know, shifts in hormones on, you know, on, on items that are issues that, you know, are, are pretty sensitive. So like political preference and, um, Oh yeah. Didn't, didn't you put something out that CNN had a problem with to do with Obama and voting? Yeah. Tell us that. Yeah. So, so first of all, men's hormones influence all this stuff. (laughs) Look, Christy, you you don't need to give another caveat, right? (laughs) You're among friends here. Okay. Uh, yes. And, you know, that was, that was, I, I should have been prepared for it. I wasn't prepared for the pushback. So what had happened with that is I started seeing little shifts in, in, in my data in women's religiosity. So just general questions that we just had as part of, you know, general surveys that we would give women, like, how much do you believe in God? Uh, and then it would like, there would be a, 
a, a dip at ovulation. Like they believed less, you know, I'm like, that's so weird. And that's kind of how we started following up on it was looking at uh, women's religious views um, and they would loosen a little bit. So we're not talking like I'm a devout Catholic and then I'm ovulating and now I'm an atheist. These are just like tiny shifts, but we pick them up because it's the same woman serving as her own control throughout the cycle. And that has a lot of statistical power. So even if you just become, uh, you know, if you're answering on a scale one through nine and you're at an eight and you come down to a seven, that's going to pick up as something, something shifting inside of you. And so from there, you know, as a young scholar, I was like, oh my God, this is probably having major implications for, for even political views, especially the social political views that have sort of like, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of sexual undertones to them, like wanting to control people's sexuality or punish for different mating strategies and stuff like that. Uh, and so that's where I took it into looking at social political um, orientation and finding that it was kind of um, similar um, uh, uh, for single women, at least in my data. And then I thought, well, this is going to come into play. And it just happened that, you know, Obama was running against Mitt Romney and they were both relatively attractive men. So I could it was kind of like a control for that because they're both tall and attractive. And, uh, and and I ran a survey and asked these social political questions and calculated the fertility. It was a cross-sectional, so wherever a woman was on the day that I did this huge survey, and I asked them to uh, who they're going to vote for. And we found that when single women were ovulating versus when they were not, this was, they were more likely to, well, they became a lot more um, liberal and more likely to vote for Obama. But the reverse was true for women who were in committed relationships. So they became a bit more conservative. and When they were ovulating. To, yeah, when they were ovulating and, and more likely to vote for Mitt Romney. So again, ovulation, uh, estrogen is the sex hormone that's high and it's shifting these you know, views. And so there must be some underlying sexual strategy implication for what's, for what's going on. What do you um, think that is? Well, it's like, we really want our attitudes and our behaviors to be as aligned as possible. So if our behavior is one thing, our attitude is, we're going to shift our attitude to match it. So, um, you know, for women in relationships, so, you know, so the answer is, I don't really know for sure, but here's what I think is going on. Um, you're really interested in sex more so at ovulation than any other time in the month. And so when you're thinking a lot about sex, it's really hard to also think about God for, for, for many women. Um, so, you know, so for single women, it's a little bit easier to understand because, you know, they're free to think about sex and, 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 have sex with the partner that they can optimize mate choice with. Women can't really optimize mate choice who are in marriages unless that is their, you know, partner. Uh, and um, and they're tending to become more conservative, I think, because that's the relationship that they're in is a mated relationship. Would there be potentially something around wanting to control other women's uh, sexual, like intrasexual competition for mates yeah. at this. But yeah. I would have thought that that would have been higher among the women that hadn't yet found a mate. I thought that they would have wanted to control the sexuality of other women more when they don't have a mate that's locked down than when they do. Yeah. 
Um, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, one of the interpretations we had for the women in relationships was just that it's punishing promiscuous women because you've, you've kind of have a, a steady stream of resources. You've got a partner and, uh, women who are single represent a threat to that. Now, oh, you know, so you're invested in-, in the market more. Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, so they're like abortion. Yes. Same sex marriage. No. I mean, even though, so these things are tangentially related to sexual strategies, mm-hmm. even like drug use, you know, so drug, you know, that they didn't want, you know, marijuana to be legalized, you know, these women in relationships. So I think it's trying to lock down the threat, the the behavior, you know, to punish the behavior of all those women out there who are threats to, 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 to what they have. Um, now, you know, and, but, and, and so, yes, yeah, single women are, you know, are still competitive, but I think that, um, you know, they're on the hunt for, well, they've got less skin resources. in the game, right? Yeah. They've got less skin in the game. Um, because, you know, you know, if you lose a husband to one of these, uh, women, um, and yeah, I mean, we didn't look at it. It'd be interesting to look at it even outside of the cycle. And I, and, and some, somebody might have looked at this, um, you know, so you kind of just align yourself with the values that are, um, uh, you know, associated with your way of life um, and uh, and protecting that. Yeah, you want the world to give you more of what it is that you've got at the moment or what you think yeah. would it would enable you to move forward with the strategy. Okay, so go, going back to the um, relative uh, career dynamics within couples, men and women, Vincent Haranam, who you might be familiar with, he's been on the show before. He had some really interesting statistics I just want to give you here around um, financial prospects and mate desirability and stuff. Women valued good financial prospects in a mate roughly twice as much as men did. This gender difference has not changed. In fact, in a 2014 Pew Research survey reported that 78% of unmarried women placed a high premium on finding a spouse with a steady job. Only 48% of men shared this view. One study found that marriages where the wife out-earned the husband were 50% more likely to end in divorce. Another study also also found that men who were not the primary breadwinner were more likely to use erectile dysfunction meditation uh, medication meditation uh, <laughs> relative to <laughs> relative to men that were. Uh, I've also seen statistics around women who are the primary breadwinner faking more orgasms, reporting less sexual satisfaction. So, for all yeah. that it's well and good offering women the opportunity to try and have it all to be able to do both, it seems like a zero-sum game, at least in part, or a closer to zero-sum game than a positive-sum game. And this is the, this is the, the fundamental issue of trade-offs, right? You, yeah. Having it all is not possible. Everybody has to make trade-offs. And it seems like if men help women and that causes a relationship to be more likely to fail, what are we doing here? If men help women do what? Be, to, have a job you, to to focus more on to their career if they push them across, but in so doing, they basically hamstring themselves to be on a ticking time clock. I've also seen uh, William Costello was telling me that uh, hypergamy. There is a little bit of data showing that hy- hypergamy is reducing, but it's reducing directly proportionally in line with female infidelity, but not male infidelity. So, yeah, wild. Yeah. So. So yes, this is a conundrum, but you know, so many women, you know, so oh, it's 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 a hard subject to talk about because I personally am a huge proponent proponent of women building wealth because I think it equals freedom. 
Uh, and that brings a lot of value with it. But yes, it does disturb partnerships. There's no way around that. So you're right. As women start earning more, marital satisfaction goes down for men and for women. And, you know, as there's, there's, you know, I, that's really interesting, the data that you were talking about. I know that we had dug some up for a paper that we were writing, looking at, you know, as, as women move up the corporate ladder, they're more likely to become divorced, but the, that's not true for men. If women win political office, uh, they're more likely to get to divorce than the women counterparts who lost their political office. <laughs> you know, oh so it's just like the more women gain status, the more discord happens in their their marriage. And, you know, I guess that's that's no big shocker. So, like, how do you get around that? I mean, it, there are many relationships out there. You'd have to be like, you know, you are, you know, the, you know, Michael Dell and you help, you know, your wife get, a, she's it's never going to be at your level. So that's not going to be a problem. It's more of like the sort of like, you know, mid-manager level, you know, problems when we're, you're, you know, like when you have dual couples that are, you know, you know, fighting for, that's another thing, fighting for time for your career. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's another element. Why do you think it is that women who earn a lot of money want a man that earns a lot of money? <laughs> uh, well, so I think that's, um, you know, also a, a vestige that's very deeply seated in our brain. And it and it's hard to, it's hard to eradicate that. It almost, like, you feel like so much power and value in being able to, you know, attract a man of high status also you have more in common with that person or maybe you feel like you do or you feel like you're more attracted to those kind of men that doesn't go away uh as a woman gains higher in status and so you know i know that um you know there's folks that say oh well you know women are gonna have to start going for you know blue collar guys who just make a lot of money and they're a plumber and um and you know Again, we have that part of our brain that might be able to do a couple of, you know, gymnastics, mental gymnastics and, and come to to that. But it's 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 really difficult. So that, you know, wanting someone who's your counterpart or even higher than you in status, it's it's pretty down deep inside of our brain. And so, you know, can we can we overcome it? Yeah. How do we overcome it? I think like the most highest status men in the world are going to have to start doing laundry and we're going to have to see it, you know, and they're going to have to start taking parental leave to take care of their kids and we're going to have to see it. You know, so what, so what you're what you're saying here is that the men that hold the highest status that cascade down from there, the social norms that other men follow that tell us what is highly regarded, what is held in high status, yes. need, need to be setting an example by doing things which affords men who are struggling to compete with their female mates, earning education, status potential, it allows them to be put on a pedestal for doing things that would have been typically more domestic. Right. So I, so if, I, th I think that may be a difficult ask. Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it is. Um, I think because you, you're saying it's a difficult ask because men aren't going to want to do that stuff. Especially the men it, at the top. Yeah, and if it is, it's a stage like George Clooney's doing laundry today. Um, you know, <laughs> for and, a photo wall, People Magazine. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I don't know. Maybe there needs to be that. Maybe companies can mandate their leadership team take family leave. So there are things that can happen, and yeah, I don't think men are going to be lining up for you know laundry or whatever. But I could see that changing you know, women. Yeah. So it's like, I, I can't get George Clooney, but I want someone who's like him and he's a guy who does laundry. 
So mm-hmm. that's acceptable. And I'm still attracted to my mate who is yeah. going around doing this in my house. We are up um. against a, a serious <laughs> God's eye coordination problem here, aren't we? I think, I mean, yeah. th- this is one of the fascinating things. I, I, I very much enjoy talking about the dynamics that underpin it. I very much get switched off when I hear people on the internet a lot of the time on Twitter saying that this is the way that the world should be. And mm-hmm. the reason that I do that is it sounds a lot like hypocrisy to me because revealed and stated preferences mm. are clashing up against each other face first here. You know, yes. the, the only reason that Tom Holland and Zendaya made headlines, apart from the fact that they're both superstars, was that she's taller than him. And that was being mm. used as, look, you see, short men shouldn't be so self-conscious about their height. You go, do you really think yeah. that short men aren't trying to date Zendaya? Like, do you really think that that's the case? So m- my point being that, when stated preferences get put out on the internet, they sound great and egalitarian. Yes. When revealed preferences come through, everybody's still trying to chase down. I mean, yes. I'm sure that you've seen this Leonardo DiCaprio thing. Yeah, at yeah, the moment, yeah. Right? It's so funny, that graph. Unbelievable, right? Okay, so I know that yeah. you've done you've done research on bad boys. Women, why are women still chasing bad boys? Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, John Mayer, mm-hmm. and do women's preferences for bad boys change over time as they age? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, when, when we say bad boy, I mean, that's like a, you know, a moniker that we use, I guess, to mean somebody who's really socially dominant and, you know, charismatic. And, you know, I always use George Clooney, but I know he's like so dated because anybody I mentioned that to is like, he's really old now. Yeah, who's Any that? student is like, oh, he's old. Well, who can I use? I don't know. But, you know, just sort of like, you know, thinking about the classic, you know, um, rebel without a cause type of a guy. I mean, like think about all the movies and the songs and the metal bands. I mean, these guys are sexy. But more than that, it's <laughs> there's something evolutionarily put in there there's as well. There's something evolutionarily there. So social dominance it was, it bought you a lot over the course of human history and it bought you a lot of status. And if you were a risk taker, you know, that bought you a lot. Um, you were really good at protection. You were really good at finding. So all of these are sort of like proxies for like estimations about how good you might be in terms of, um, yes, getting resources, but yes, and yes, your status. Um, but you know, if we talk about our most anciently evolved attraction systems it's indirect genetic benefits and then when what's what's that mean that means genes so if you know this is this is the top dog guy and if i have a you know i'm attracted to him so we don't have to think if i have a baby with him my son's gonna have those genes like we don't really think yeah but it's just like that increased attraction like you are just um, programmed to optimize mate choice. And so that's why we find these like devil may care guys. So now, you know, is it, is it as valuable in our, you know, nowadays? I don't know. That's a question that maybe we can talk about, but it certainly was ancestrally. These are the guys that were the first ones up on the hill when we needed to conquer, you know, another group, but, you know, so, you know, and then, but these guys also don't make the best husbands in the world. So often women do have to make a trade-off between, you know, different features in a mate that they value. Didn't you find out, though, that women looked at bad boys and that they did think that they would be better fathers? Yeah, for them. So, (laughs) yes. So, uh, 
yeah, this is one of my favorite studies I ever ran because we hired an actor and he was just amazing because he played both roles. He the, pretended the, the, he was a twin, right? Yeah, yeah. He was like <laughs> superb at it. And we had a Hollywood screenwriter write a bad boy and we had a Hollywood screenwriter write a, a kind of a nerd, a shy, standoffish kind of guy. And yeah, you know, <laughs> when women were imagining, so they were talking to this guy thinking he was a prospective partner for them, like they might date. And so then when they're like thinking about themselves with this guy, they did when they were ovulating report that, yeah, oh my God, I could totally see him doing my dishes and he'd probably be a great dad. And so it's like these, you know, rose colored glasses came on, especially when it came to partner skills. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, when I'm ovulating, I think he's going to be a better guitar player or a better piano player or nicer to his grandma. It was like, you know, he's going to be a better partner for me overall. So yeah, so, but that's, Sorry, outside of ovulating, were these women or were other women not seeing the bad boy as the preferential carer? Would they have seen the nerd? So, the... I'd have to, I don't remember these. So, so, so it's like the stable guy. We always kind of want those qualities at some level, but um, it was, it wasn't like they were totally turned off by the bad guy or bad boy guy at... Mm you know, at lower fertility. Um, but that's the, that's the, the dangerous element, right? Like this is where yeah. um, some of the redder corners yeah. of the internet find kernels of truth that they can latch onto that, right? you know, you use uh, charisma and social dominance as a proxy for confidence, competence, conscientiousness, industriousness, all of the things, you know, status, resources, right. blah, blah, blah. And, it's pretty robust, which is a little bit of a difficult one because, again, revealed and stated preferences. I want the, but then I suppose these are stated preferences as well, right? So they are, but we also we also videotaped their behaviors and you know nonverbal, verbal. They were acting very differently, you know, with these flicking the know, hair bad, and the playing yeah, flicking with the, the hair and. You know, and so in the same session, they met with these set of twins. You know, one twin was nerdy, one twin was a bad same boy. Guy. <laughs> and that guy asked the same question. So, for example, like the nerdy guy would be like, So, what are you, what are you doing for the holiday? Oh, me and my boyfriend are going to go to Las Vegas. Then the bad boy asked her what she's going to be doing for the holiday. She said, Me and my friend are going to be going to Las Vegas. So, little tiny changes. Oh, my God. That happened are revealed because. You know, these this is this is an indicator that there is increased attraction to this, you know, bad boy type of guy. Same man. So you can't say like, oh, one is so like, you know, dreamy and the other one's so ugly. No, it's the same guy controlled. It's his behavior came across as like, eh, you know, go out with me, don't, I don't care, whatever. But if yep. you do go out with me, like you It'll will start writing with your left hand if you're right handed. That's how great it's gonna be, you know. Um <laughs> So, all right, that's that's what's going on uh, internally. What about the local ecology? How do sex ratios change women's desire for career versus family? So I looked into this a little bit, and it was really stemming from, like, why was I such a nerd in, in high school? Like, why do women, you know... I just wanted to understand, like, what makes women, like, into sort of lean in type of a woman versus a lean out type of a woman. And, you know, I, I wondered if, if, well, first of all, I wondered if how they did, you know, on the mating market when they first, um, you know, hit puberty had anything to do with it. But then I found that, 
you know, one thing that disrupts the mating market is, is sex ratio. So um, when, when there's no men around, women become more competitive because there's just, you know, fewer um, partners out there um, for them. Uh, we know that. And one of the things that we looked into was do women prefer, which is their ambition change. So they were becoming more ambitious and they were desiring career over family. So that trade-off, when we led women to believe that this is a college campus, that there was just a like it, like so many more w- women around than there were men, then they were like, I want a career. And, um, you know, and not just any career, I want to be, you know, on the leadership team of a corporate, you know, company. And so it's not, but that's not just, you know, so we say that's stated preference, I guess, but we found this um, in demographic data too, um, which it's not an experiment. So we can, you know, when there's no, when there are fewer men around, there's more women that are pilots and surgeons and lawyers. And so that's great news because women can and want to do this job, but it has a lot to do with like what's going on in the mating environment. Um, is there then, an argument, is there an argument to be made as well that there's nothing else for them to spend their time on with the men? So I might as well invest it into that. But if the right man came along, then the career might stop. Yeah. So the opposite of that is when they were just sort of like a, you know, uh, when there were a lot of men around and there were a lot of great options, then women wanted family. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, your brain is kind of figuring out like what's going on in my environment. Is it, is it, is it, is it good for, you know, mating? Is it not good? And then sort of directing your behavior um, accordingly. And if it's, if it's a good time to strike, and you can get a really high quality partner, which is sort of the, the opposite was we were leading them to believe that there were a lot of men on campus. Then it was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to do family. And so we started calling it plan A and plan B. Um, and I'm a plan. So it's like and there's nothing wrong with plan B. I'm a plan B person because I was a nerd in high school because I couldn't get out of my um, own head about being a nerd ever. Um you know, I was just like career, 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 career. I mean, and then I went back to my high school reunion and they're like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, Christina, you were always in the library. <laughs> but they're like, oh, who are you? You know, they didn't remember me because I was always, I guess, in the library. Um, but yeah, so I think that it changes with the mating market. The wildest thing that I see there is the, the sector ratio hypothesis. When I first learned about that, it blew my mind. Then I learned about the changes in mating strategy, so short-term versus long-term, and women are the gatekeepers to sex. They're the supply and men are the demand. So it's kind of them, I guess, that play by the rules that are going on. Men don't really have the rules. They're just go, go, go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you've got going on here is behavior influenced by the mating market, the local mating market, which isn't necessarily to do with mating. Right. You would say your career as a woman is one of the things that is, as a man, you might be able to make the, the argument that your career choice is very much influenced by the mating market mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you want to. I would imagine that the reverse may be true, that men also become more competitive for particular types of jobs in a place where there are uh, fewer, fewer women. But the fact that you are influencing behavior, which doesn't directly relate to your mate value, really. Yeah, yeah based on something which is to do with mating dynamics is absolutely insane. 
Yeah, well, I think it's like we're so hardwired to figure out what's going on in the mating market that it just infl- it trickles down to whatever the tools are to get your own resources. Like, well, I might have to get, I might have to go out and you know figure out how I'm going to do this on my own, yeah. um, or you know, it, it, and we really don't know. And it could be like, well, I'm going to go into these high paying careers because maybe there's more men there. Um, but <laughs> but we did. Oh my god, that is such an unpopular theory to go for. The reason that women want high paying careers is because there's maybe some hot men in there. Yeah, I mean, so, so no, but, <laughs> you know, we don't know. But so the leading uh, theory is, is that, you know, uh, you got to take care of yourself yeah. and, um, and maximize independence. It, yeah. And, and, you know, running a household is really hard and it just is so much, I, it is so much easier when there's another adult around. When you have someone that, you know, you can pool resources with, it's easier and it's more difficult because then you got to manage, you know, the relationship. But I think that, you know, a lot of women, especially young women, that is, you know, you know, that is really important. Like, is, am I going to find, you know, my soulmate, my ideal mate right now, or is that going to be really hard for me? Because if it is, then I've got to figure out in this world with these tools, how I'm going to support myself. You did a ton of work around buying behavior, what consumer behavior, what women buy and why they do it and stuff. If someone has never thought about, I don't even know what you call it, gendered buying, uh, if someone's never considered this, like, w- why do women buy the things that they buy? What What is that to know here? Well, that's a really broad question. And so my first, I guess, series of studies that I looked at women's consumer behavior was looking at their consumer behavior across the ovulatory cycle, because, um, you know, these fundamental motives that we have, um, in life, um, mating, get status, um, have kids, um, protect yourself from disease. These are all fundamental, um, motives. And, um, when women are ovulating, like we were talking about before, they're, they're really interested, their sexual desire goes up. So then they, you know, they, they want to look, I, I thought, well, if their sexual desires is up, maybe they want to look sexier. And so the first study I ever did was looking at women's clothing preferences ar- across the ovulatory cycle. And we would find these really strong differences in what women would choose to wear for themselves out of their own closet, or even just imagined in their head or when they were shopping on a website, it was, it was just, you know, it was, it was sexier. They wanted to look more fashionable. So they were spending, you know, more money and, and choosing more items that were, you know, sexy, uh, when they were ovulating and, and less so when they were, weren't. Um, but all of these, you know, I, I always call them tools because that's what products are is tools. So it's like, what does evolutionary psychology have to do with what we you know, buy? And it's like, there's so many products out there. Most products out there serve these fundamental motives that have deep evolutionary roots. So even lipstick, you know, certainly wasn't around uh, 10,000 years ago, but the, the motivation to buy is still a motivation that was around a long time ago and influenced by all of the factors that we're talking about. Like, who am I going to the club with? Who's in my social network? You know, how, you know, how do things look for me? Am I married? Am I single? You know, all these things. And, you know, then we can, you know, we can predict how that might change uh, women's consumption. Um, But yeah, so, you know, we got clothes, we've got, you know, all these different cosmetic procedures and skincare and everything. Do women wear different types of makeup? 
throughout the ovulatory cycle? Yeah, they, they wear more makeup when they're ovulating. Um, and I think that's just, uh, and I didn't run this study, but my colleagues did. And I think that's just a product of wanting to, you know, just feeling sexier, wanting to be more attractive, you know, wanting to optimize mate choice, you know, and, 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 you know, being more focused on, on that. Is Um, that mediated by whether they're in a relationship or not? Do single women do this more than married women? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that because I don't remember from their data, but a lot of these differences, we don't, um, I know that I talked about a really big one with the politics, but um, for consumer consumption, I don't find differences, even with um, between heterosexual and lesbian women. Um, they still are showing, you know, the greater interest in, um, you know, products that will make them look more attractive. What are, What are the fundamental, what's the fundamental driving force of women's purchases then? Is it signals of youth and fertility? Because it's like, bags and 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 heels and yeah other things so that i don't know what I women buy mention. whatever that, that is yeah so for many years that was sort of the and i guess it still is is, is women's luxury consumption because women spend you know women spend more on luxury than men do uh with the bags and the you know the purses and you know the clothes and um and it's so um you know, it was a really, it was a conundrum because, you know, men don't know the difference between, you know, a Louboutin, you know, they don't know a Louboutin from a JCPenney shoe. Neither do you at the moment. No. So what are, you know, so why are women, you know, buying luxury if it's not for men, you know, who might it be for? And so the original sort of past few papers that we had was about must be for intersexual competition purposes with other women so they're signaling to other women signaling something um to other women and it it might just be their status to sort of you know show you know don't mess with me you know like Look at I, all the spare resources yeah. i've got i could wreck you yeah i mean like and or you know investment from a, a partner um but oh you know, so sorry could that be a sign of this is how much my partner's invested in me therefore you don't want to try and take him away from me because he's just spent three grand on this handbag. Something like that. Yes, it could oh, be that. Very it interesting. Could be that. Um, and it could just be, you know, luxury is associated with high status. And high, status buys you so much in life that we just, you know, kind of have, you know, we just go gaga for trying to get as much, you know, status and accolades and people clapping for us and you know that that we can because it used to be so valuable it was sometimes the difference between life and death and so buying luxury um you know the motivation might just be to associate with those people or associate yourself with the kind of people who can buy these things and that's why you know they i think all these luxury brands have like keychains and little like cheaper things that all the rest of us can buy to just feel a little bit like we're part of that group. We're often told about the importance of dominance hierarchy and status for men, status seeking men, high status men are the most attractive ones. Mm. What does status mean or how does it manifest for women? So I don't know that it's different for women than it is uh, for men. Um, Although, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, you know, the same in terms of, you know, a dominance hierarchy. I think it's still like, I'm, you know, I have this, I won. Um, 
and it works the same way. I always consider it, you know, sort of the same in men and women, and maybe it manifests differently. Um, and it does in terms of, you know, maybe the consumer products that are tra- they're attracted to. But, um, you know, for or, or, or career career striving, um, you know, we did manipulate the mating market. And, you know, when men were gone, women were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a certain, you know, it's like, so it's like, so when you kind of take men off the table, then women are free to express these, you know, preferences for following passions or jobs or, you know, whatever, Um, you know, and I find that really interesting because men and women really are, have these curiosities that feed into career preferences. And then women learn that there's a trade-off to be made. Yes. um, Given the fact, just going back to what we talked about before, given the fact that um, the local ecology, the sex ratio between men and women heavily mediates what women want to do with regards to their career versus family, how do you work out which one's the set point? You mean which one is sort of the Base. default? Yeah, which one? Which one's the the natural? Then you've got naturalistic fallacy. Which one's the desirable? Well, then what do you mean in terms of desirable? What are you optimizing for? Whose value judgment do you put on top of it? My point being, if it can be mediated so heavily by the local men, like yeah. we don't know whether or not women that are going to go to their graves are going to be more satisfied with a lot of houses and no kids, or the ones that have lots of kids but are scraping around for money, or all of this stuff. Like it's. I'm just trying to work out what it is, where we work out what it is that women want without the external influence of the environment. Is that, is that even something that's possible to do? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a really tricky question. I think they're, you know, emerging are is more variance in things like we were talking about before, like women wanting to have kids. Do they, you know, do they end up having kids? Do they not? Do they go into high paying careers? Um, you know, do they not? Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I guess my answer is like, you know, marriage is set up, it highly benefits men. And, you know, you know, I don't want to paint the picture of women being doomed, but a lot of women do come up against this, you know, trade-off. And, you know, some women are totally happy just moving forward and, and being focused on their careers. And some women, that's not for them. They're going to be, you know, more aligned with, you know, staying home and building a family. And that gives them that sort of sense of value and accomplishment, just like it would be if, if for, for another woman working up the leadership team ladder. So I think there's a lot of individual, you know, differences there. I guess the commonality is that most women run up against this, you know, having to figure out the trade-off. Yes. Yes. That's a, that's a good point. The fact that the, the trade-off is there no matter what um, for women. And given the fact that there are fewer fem cells than incels, most women at some point will probably have the option to make this decision. But this mm-hmm. is, as I was reading through some of your work, I kept on thinking about uh, Barry Schwartz's The Paradox of Choice. Oh, yes. Yeah, because yes. that has to play a huge part of this. For the right. people that don't know, Barry Schwartz uses this really great example in this legendary TED Talk where he talks about genes. And he says, like, in the 70s, there was one type of genes. And you'd go in and it would be, what's your waist size? And you'd walk out with a pair of blue jeans. And now you go in and it's, do you want skinny or boot cut? Do you want yeah. the stonewash? Do you want the black? Do you want the stretch? Do you want the whatever? And we would think that yeah. being utilitarian, rational beings, giving people more options would mean that they would be able to refine their choice more accurately to what they genuinely want versus what the market can offer them but it turns out quite the opposite that this decision fatigue 
existential dread of denim choice that we're faced with causes us to regret the decisions that we didn't make and to vacillate about the decisions that we should make a lot more. And this is, I mean, the genie's not going back in the bottle with regards to women being in the workplace, educational attainment, equality, and so on and so forth. But there is an interesting question to be asked around whether or not this overall makes for a happier existence. The, the question basically yeah. is, is ignorance bliss? And no one's yeah. running, no politicians running on the, on the policy of, women, have you ever considered regressing back to the 1940s? Because it's very, I, I know that you might not be happy about the lack of money, but it would make your dating options a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. So there are many negatives about, you know, turning the clock back to the 1940s, but there would be a lot of decisions that were made for you that you wouldn't have to, you know, worry about. Um, but no, I strongly believe that the abundance of choice has made us so much more miserable than we ever have been. In fact, you know, I have a paper called Serendipity because um, we don't have a lot of that anymore um, because of the sort of saturation of choice. How do you and, mean? Uh, because of the endless choices that we find in, you know, from consumer products to mates, it's just, you know, and like you were saying, you know, even within category of consumer products, there's just so many, you know, different kinds of pairs of, you know, blue jeans that we could have, we could, we could choose. And then, you know, the opportunity cost is so salient and, you know, we're choosing wrong. And then, you know, we defer choice altogether or, you know, other things. And we've actually looked at, so think about dating apps, right? Where, you know, our brain is getting the signal that there's just so many, you know, people out there that could possibly be our partners. And we, and, and, even though they're in our phone or on our TV or wherever, our brain is at some level categorizing these people as part of our group. And, you know, because no one came into your living space thousands of years ago who wasn't a part of your group. So it's potential. And so, you know, but, you know, so but there's just so many people out there. And so you, you, you choose one, you go on a date and, you know, you're thinking about that person versus all of the other ones that could be better out there that you have really easy access to. And it, it does something to satisfaction. So we, we tried our best. So I have a paper on serendipity and it's all about consumer products, but we did try to do this with mating where, you know, we gave people, um, you know, a choice of a partner and they picked a partner and then they kept seeing that partner over and over again. So it was like, it was like we were doing like a, a saturation um, and we do this with consumer products all the time where eventually you're like, oh my God, I love this cookie. And you're like, I can't eat that cookie again. Um, and so like eventually like exposure decreases attraction, like the more and more you're seeing this person, sexual attraction. Did you see that most recent paper that came out about women's decline in, uh, sexual attraction occurring more quickly than men's? I did i did and so and my oh. female colleagues are like yes so we knew this and now they're we already knew this but now there's some data behind it and then the men were like there's got to be moderators you know? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, yeah probably <laughs> but um but you know i think you know overall there's a decline in in marital satisfaction that just happens for men and women over time as it does with like anything you you know see again and again and again it's not it's not going to have that you know sort of like magical um, spark, but what we were we we had two conditions. One in which it was set up like a dating app where they were looking at a bunch of pictures, chose one person to talk to, and then we had another condition where they were just like it was like it was like what now Netflix has because they caught on to it like random assignment, 
here's your bait. And then those people were more satisfied over time, even doing the different exposures than the ones that chose from a selection of mates. And we think it was because their brain was on, wow, there's so many others out there. Like I chose this, like you have endless supplies of candy. You can only choose one kind. And then you finally make your choice. It's really hard to choose. And then it's, it's, it's okay, but I wonder what that one other one would have been like. You know, we're thinking about that. Whereas if you just sort of randomly come upon something, you like it more. It's like, you know, when a song comes randomly on the radio, you like it more than if it was something you chose from your playlist. That's Interesting. Happens. Okay, so I, I understand why the serendipity thing gets lost. I think when it comes to me, I'm the sort of person who, when I was uh, a teenager, would obsess over the all the different features of all the Nokia phones. And I'd think about the one I was going to upgrade to for six months beforehand and stuff yeah. like that. And there's still there's still elements of that in me. One of the solutions that I've found to kind of get around that is to place an arbitrary constraint on how long I have to make the decision. Mm. So if I've got to choose between three different hotels, I'm going to Rome, I'm taking my mom to Rome in a couple of weeks time. And I was just like, look, you've got 10 minutes, you have 10 minutes to choose. And once the 10 minutes is up, like you, that's it, you're done. So it actually did help a little bit. And I I don't, I don't care. I don't yeah. think about the other hotels think, that I could have, yeah. would have, should have got. I've got, you know, three or four different tabs open. That one, that one, that one, best location. We'll go for that one. I'm done. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that we having, I'm having to create this weird temporal mind prison in yeah. a desperate attempt to not feel choice anxiety is, is a strange one. All right. So yeah. thinking about um, one of the common tropes or headlines that you see online with regards to women purchasing decisions and stuff like that how right do you think it is to lay women's desire for focus on beauty and dieting and signals of fitness at the feet of capitalism how what do you, what do i think about making you know ha- how right is it to throw right those yeah to because i mean you know a lot of the time the accusation is these yeah. big big wigs sat in offices in mm-hmm. new york city designing marketing mm-hmm. campaigns that do the whatever um how right yeah. is that to 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 lay it at the feet of capitalism? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, it's it's right or wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm in, how I'm accurate an evolu- is I'm it? an evolutionary psychologist, but I'm in the marketing department. Um, so I I don't know. It can be totally off base at times. It totally totally depends, and I think it changes with you know how society is changing. Certainly, things are changing rapidly now with. How, you know, especially in the beauty industry, it's like, you know, all more inclusive. It's not exactly what it was before, you know, Victoria's Secret took huge, you know, amount of, you know, online punishment for their not keeping up with the times and being more inclusive. Um, and, you know, they eventually had to, you know, get with it or die completely. Um, and so that's really, you know, new um but you know i it's i i don't know is it right or wrong i I guess you know consumers you know can you know be smart and make up their own minds and realize that there's always going to be someone behind the curtain that's trying to manipulate your preferences and your purchasing i mean that's you know sort of what you know the advertising and marketing industry is is all about um you know, if that's what you're getting at, like, it's really hard to say it's right or wrong. Um, but it's going to continue uh, because businesses are always in, in, invested in, in, you know, strengthening the bottom line, um, even if it means by, you know, creating an illusion for you in order for you to buy the product. 
looking at the different consumer purchases of men and women, were there any surprising purchases which were actually effective at attracting a mate? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and we didn't measure the end result. Like, did this attract a partner because you 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 bought this? I think some of my colleagues looked at like men looking at women with you know expensive handbags and you know, and that's where and found that women were like men were like, wow, she's going to be a lot of maintenance. Um, so we did <laughs> we did find that men were more attracted to women with you know designer handbags than they were with women with you know you know no handbag or lower class handbag or whatever. Um, but, um, but I've never really looked at, you know, outcomes of, you know, consumer purchases on dating, but, you know, I think this goes for men and women, you know, people who pay attention to their attractiveness and, you know, try to clean themselves up and just be, you know, attentive to general overall, you know, hygiene, that that is going to be very helpful, those products in, you know, in attracting mates. And then, um, you know, for, but again, the, the jury's still out on women's luxury purchases. Like, does that help? I don't know. Maybe aligning with, you know, high status groups uh, does buy you something. Um, but for men, you know, having these, you know, having a car that's, you know, like a, what is it, Maserati or something, you know, that helps, you know, so because women are more interested in, in status when it comes to, um, you know, their their partners than men are. There was an interesting study that I saw on Tinder to do with right swipes on a guy, exactly the same guy, but they replaced the Nissan Altima with a Lexus. And the guy, it was like a a significant increase in the number of right swipes. But that being said, it's also a significant number of increases in right swipes if you've got a dog versus if you've got a cat. A cat is actually below the control and the dog is significantly above. So what you want is a dog in a Lexus, basically. And that's presumably maximum right swipes yeah that's really interesting yeah because a, a dog is masculine and a cat is feminine that's how the man that's was interpreted yeah, yeah also that uh, i think women understand the fact that the dog requires care that the cat oh. is basically an independent creature right yes he has to be more paternal he has to be able to be conscientious industrious reliable orderly yeah. how would you how, this dog would be dead whereas the cat yeah. can be you can be the, the worst cat owner in history and the cat will still be fine Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So putting a man in a situation where he's, so, you know, it's like, think about gender differences and attraction for a woman walking on an airplane, holding a baby versus a man walking on an airplane, holding a baby. Like if you can do this real live experiment and I've seen it where, oh, oh, everybody's happy that a man is carrying a baby. The woman's carrying the baby. Everyone's fearful that it's going to cry. Don't not sit, another don't one sit next to me and i think you know so i think that it's like women talk so this is another wanting to have it all we all want to have it all in our mate we want our mate to be socially dominant and he's going to charge up that hill and be you know risk taker and you know fight everyone but us and then at home you know be you know real nice character. and agreeable yeah, and all yeah. the rest of it. Mm-hmm. so i had a logan yuri who is hinge's director of relationship science on the show oh, okay uh, and obviously she's got access to just so much fascinating data she calls them an era of maximizers these people who want to maximize absolutely every different statistic that they can have with their partner Uh, and when you've got um mate matching it's it's strange right because you have assortative mating but you also have this everyone wants to just pitch themselves a little bit a little bit beyond where it is that they are um and when you combine that with the fact that one of the in fact it might be the single biggest predictor of extramarital sex is premarital sex 
or extramarital partners is premarital partners, basically. The more people that you've slept with before your partner, the more likely you are that you're going to cheat. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So when you combine all of that together with a global sexual marketplace that is the most frictionless way to just browse all of the different types of genes yeah. that, you would, that you would be potentially prepared to try on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it, fascinating to think about, like, how that is operating inside a brain that's used to coming in contact with 50 to 100 people and that's it and then you die you know yep. and now it's like whoa it's like well, blowing your mind will wills costello's got this uh, theory around um to do with his incel research where he said that you can achieve in a single day more rejection than a man would have achieved in his entire lifetime yeah and but the rejection hurts less but it hurts less in the moment, but what's the cue that it's telling you? Is there something that it's keeping track? There's a little ticker. One other thing, I remember reading this ages ago. There was an interesting uh, way to frame married couples purchasing choices. So when you have a married couple, you are pooling together your resources into a single bank, right? A single, a single block of, of cash. And then from that, each person draws out money. But the men and what they spend their money on and the women and what they spend their money on seems to continue to be signals of fitness outside of the relationship. The man is buying the watch, which signals status, prestige, the fast car, which means that if he was on Tinder, he would get more right swipes. He'll certainly get more turn looks from the women that are on the street. The yes. woman is still signaling fertility and youth. Maybe she's getting cosmetic procedures. Maybe she's buying expensive makeup and expensive beauty products and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is there not something really like kind of hilarious about the fact that both of these people have pooled their resources together to then separately spend them on things that signal mate fitness? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and not surprising, I guess. Um, you know, uh, these are, so we have these like, you know, monogamous marriages, but it's not our mating system. So it never goes away. Like you don't get married and then you're, you know, completely dead from all these other you know, the motivations uh, that we have um, for people externally. Um, in, in, the, in the work that I did with um, having, you know, a highly attractive bad boy type of guy um, and looking at women's choices of, you know, products across the cycle, like I said, we didn't find differences between heterosexual and homosexual women. Homosexual women were still making themselves more attractive when they were preparing to meet the bad boy. No way. Yes. And so... What do you think's going on there? It's just so deep-seated that, that even someone who isn't sexually attracted to them with their current like sexual identity is... Right. Is That's what I thought. I thought initially I was like, well, maybe it's because we just as women didn't have a lot of control over mate choice. We had some control, right? But not, you know, as much as we have right now. So maybe it's that. But also what occurred to me is that, you know, attractive people tend to be the people who are higher status and get, you know, favored and, you know, get the better jobs and get the better resources. And so maybe it's just a cue uh, to not, you know, to look good so that this person likes you. You're just currying because, favor through halo yeah. effect, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's like, so it could, it could be that, although, like I said, we didn't find that, you know, and these were ovulating because they were ovulating uh, homosexual women, I should say. Um, so that's kind of, it, it, it was the, I thought that it was just like, this is the hormonal profile, but it's not directed to the target you would think. Um, but it could still just have value if, 
you know, you're going to be ma- meeting this person. And so, uh, and, and I know that's not exactly what you meant by the pooling of the resources and then people still spend it on, uh, you know, those things, but, you know, Hey, you know, aligning yourself with, with what's externally valued still reaps rewards. So I, you know, I, it well, plus it's, 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 we're not, we are no longer stopping trying to attract our partner as well. You know, yes, that's like, true. It's it's whatever you would say, like intramarriage. Like, yeah, I guess that should have been my first thought. Like, yeah, you know, you still have to keep a, the other half yeah. happy, <laughs> yeah, and attracted. Yeah. And presumably, the cues. It's not like the cues change that much. Yeah, men's testosterone might go down a little bit. Women are a little bit more aggressive if they smell the newborn baby's head. But fundamentally, we're still running on the same sort of programming. Right. Yeah. How do you? I keep on having this conversation with people. Um, because I'm touching on a lot of evolutionary psychology at the moment because I'm fascinated by it and it's not going to stop, so sorry. But a lot of people that listen to <laughs> a good bit of the stuff that comes out from the show mention that the more that they learn about evolutionary psychology, the less that they can see people as people. They mm-hmm. don't see them as the architect of their own actions. They see them with uh-huh. less agency. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you integrated your increasing understanding of the motives that drive human behavior mm-hmm. without losing your mind? Well, because we have a prefrontal cortex and I love it and I hate it at the same time. So it means that, you know, I, you know, the, the hormones don't take over completely like they do in other animals where it's just, you become a robot and it's like you switch, you know? Um, and I'm seeing that in my, my female dog. I think I, uh, I, she was going to get spayed. I, I, I put it off cause she's in the middle of her cycle and she just totally changes all her behavior. And she's just like looking for, you know, just her behavior is just so crazy and male. Oh, did she have a phantom pregnancy? Um, no, no, she didn't. She just is a puppy and okay. she went into heat, um, before I thought she was going to, and I want to let her complete the cycle before I spay her. Um, but I see the change in her behavior and it's just like, really automatic like almost like an automatron like you know she is one thing the next and another day she's just like can't wait to find a partner you know and that's all she's thinking about is who can i what male dog can i get in front of you know and so at a basic level it's that now humans are so much more complex um than that but we still like i was saying before we still have sort of the, the the parts of our brains that we share with all mammals even you know all organisms if you go even deeper you know reproduce so we like sex we like to rest we like to eat you know all those kind of things and then you know what makes us human is the part of our brain that you know we can intellectualize all this stuff and um, I actually find it so much more helpful to my well-being to think about this. Um, you know, research shows if you know the game is rigged in some way and you know how it's rigged and how it's set up, it just makes how you get through the day a lot, a lot easier. It certainly does um, for me. And, you know, it's not to say that we're, you know, we're, we're sort of automatronic, you know, uh, like animals, you know, but, but we kind of need the blueprint and to be like, Oh, you know, to sort of find these workarounds. I feel this way because of this, um, you know, because I'm just feeling really competitive with this person right now. And that's probably because it's something I'm lacking in my life or, you know, we can do the sort of backtrack of, you know, when we, when we don't feel our best or, you know, so I don't see it as such a sad story as maybe others do. I don't either. I mean, for me, the only way that you can transcend your programming is by understanding it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like and that's so, the first step. 
Right. And so, you know, as much as I understood, like, the pushback that I got for the one paper that I had on politics, you know, my approach has always been, like, let's try to understand things. And so, you know, yeah, replicate it, see if this is even a thing for sure. But um, but don't say that it just, you know, can't be because let's just not look at this anymore. It certainly scared me away from looking at it anymore. But, um, you know, I still think that we're in the business of, you know, building knowledge and it has to be across the board knowledge, not like knowledge that's convenient and some that, you know, is feel good. It's just, it, this is life. And I want to understand my life just like we understand the lives of other organisms and we don't, you know, put, you know, our opinions on them. Mm. Yeah, that's the way that I feel. I've, I, I, Robert Wright's The Moral Animal was the first thing I ever read about evolutionary psychology. And as I was reading through that, it was kind of like, I don't know, veils falling in front of my eyes. And every yeah. single time that I learned something else, I'm like, okay, well, the amount of satisfaction that I get from understanding why we are the way we are and the programming that we have, as far as I'm concerned, way, way outweighs any discomfort that I have to deal with for the fact that it's going to be, oh, well, like I'm, I'm going to have to understand that the reason he's being aggressive is because of male parental uncertainty or whatever it is that, that is right. causing somebody to act the way that they do. Yeah. It's, I, I find it beautiful. I, I genuinely do. And the only way that you can transcend it is by understanding it and being aware of it. So, but yeah, Chris, absolutely. Christina Durante, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Christina Durante. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Christina underscore Durante. And then um, ChristinaDurante.com. Fantastic. Christina, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. And if that is you, then you're going to miss episodes when they get uploaded. So go to Spotify and press the follow button in the middle, or there is a plus in the top right-hand corner on Apple Podcasts. It'll support the show. It'll make me very happy. And it means that you don't miss episodes when they go live. A thank you. Also, don't forget that you can receive a 37% discount on all of MyProtein's products by going to bit.ly slash proteinwisdom, the code modernwisdom at checkout. Get a 15% discount on everything from Verso at ver.so slash modernwisdom and the code MW15 at checkout. And you can get a 15% discount on Crafted London's jewellery at bit.ly slash cdwisdom and the code MW15 at checkout. I'll see you next time.